0: hello everyone and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast and for something slightly different this week we do have a greeting from clyde so without further ado here is clyde
1: hello south Hugh. it is a joy to be able to join with you together today by video from the southern hemisphere down in perth australia if you're new among us, my name's Clyde, I'm one of the pastors at South Hugh, and my wife Jillian and I are currently on a sabbatical, a study leave, as I do preparation for a teaching we're going to be doing from God's Word this coming year. And it's going to kick off this fall with our study of the Book of Revelation. So hope you can join us for that. We're also down in Perth, Australia, which is in winter right now, but it's a very balmy winter. But this is where our son, daughter-in-law, and two grandkids live. So it's been a gift to be able to be with them uh, during this time. To let you know about a com- couple of community life matters. Uh, for one, very thankful to be introducing Arlene Bergen as our teacher today from God's Word. Arlene, her husband Rob, and kids are part of our church family at South Hugh. Many of you know that Arlene is one of our main teachers and leaders in our women's ministry so good to be able to have arlene teaching us again this weekend and a second matter you may have heard already about our june giving challenge each year as we come to our fiscal year end we provide encouragement a challenge for us to give financially to help us continue to lead as many as possible to passionately follow jesus if you're able to contribute towards us it would be deeply appreciated you can find more information on Realm, or on our online viewpoint, or go to our church website as well for that. And look forward to seeing you face-to-face in August, but until then, may the peace, grace, and mercy of Christ be with you.
0: So as Clyde said, Arlene is speaking this week and starting off our new series, Eating with Jesus. And also, we do ask that you prayerfully consider giving to our June Giving Challenge this year. So just a reminder, our goal this month is to raise $325,000 toward our building fund, and we recognize that's a big ask in these challenging times, so we would like to prayerfully consider how God might be leading all of us in this. Donations can be made on Realm through a text code on the website or dropped in any of the donation boxes along the back wall of the Worship Center. And we thank you for your consideration in this. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint. You can find a link to our viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we'd love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to Him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together.
2: Good evening. It's good to be together with you here and look forward to getting into God's Word together. Let's just open in a word of prayer. As we come to your Word, Father, give us ears to hear, hearts to respond to and for the glory of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. So on May 22nd, a gold medal game in the much anticipated 2022 Genesis basketball classic ended with a 56-54 victory for supreme over Genesis. That is a verifiable factual statement. The game happened on that day between those two teams and it ended just like I said it did. I was a witness to it. It's a factual statement, but it's a pretty flat statement. It's uninteresting. It's devoid of the richness and the depth that was part of that historical event. What it doesn't convey to you is that the Gen Classic hadn't been held for two years because of a global pandemic and I mean how many layers can we dig through in that one sentence, right? It doesn't give any texture to the battle. It doesn't capture the intensity of a supreme team who had to play more difficult teams to make it to the final game. Or the Genesis team who went into that final game carrying the weight of representing their club's winning ethos by getting the win. and doesn't tell you that in one sense, Supreme could have been looked at as the underdogs because they were playing the host club, which is often acknowledged to be the top basketball club in the city and that can be disputed. But it also doesn't reveal that Supreme was made up of mostly grade nine boys and a couple provincial players, whereas Genesis was only grade eight boys and no provincial players. And so from that statement, you can see Supreme won by one basket, right? Two points. But you don't learn that the game went back and forth. The teams traded the lead. It doesn't tell you about the players, about the fans, about the refs, the scorekeepers, the time te- keepers. You don't know enough to sympathize with a stalwart Genesis defender who fouled out near the end of the fourth quarter, or his mom watching from the sidelines, or maybe his young coach who had accepted a short-term pro contract, and so that made him miss the first couple months of the season in a critical window of development time with his players. Facts aren't personal, and in and of themselves, they don't often reveal if they're good news or bad news because the answer is going to depend on where you or where the narrator sits or are positioned in the story. And so when facts fall flat, we sometimes miss the message. And I wonder if we too often come to the Bible as a flat recounting of facts or history or rules. And we don't see those richer layers that it is communicating about real people in real places who lived in real time. And when we do that, are we more likely to miss the message that's in the story behind the facts? And so today we're going to look at a story that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. That sounds kind of flat, doesn't it? I mean, you know where to turn in your Bible, but there's nothing about what I just said that probably piques your interest or makes you curious and want to go there. So we're going to dig a little deeper into the story. So if you're looking for Matthew in your Bible, you'll find it about two-thirds of the way through. I'm not great with math, so if that ratio looks off, my apologies. And it'll come right after, in most Bibles, a blank page that's going to separate and indicate a separation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a testament is just a statement of fact. It serves as tangible proof or evidence, or it can be a promise or covenant. So Matthew's words are the first that we're going to read in the New Testament if we're reading it in order. And so we're going to be reading words about new proof or new evidence that relates to a new or a better promise or expanded promise. And in my Bible, the book of Matthew is more fully titled, The Gospel According to Matthew. And gospel means good news. And so this means that a man named Matthew is writing to testify to what he is convinced is good news. He's writing to give us proof or evidence to his claim. So I think things are getting a little bit more interesting, right? Because who doesn't want to hear a little bit of good news? And so before we get to our passage, which is in Matthew chapter 9, we have to set the context because context matters. When you hear your kid talking about getting some drip, it's really good to know the context of that vernacular so you know that they're talking about clothes, not an illicit substance, which can happen and make you freak out unnecessarily. So when we get to Matthew's gospel and we start to read what he is telling us is good news, the first thing we see he kicks it off with is a list of names. And we might think, man, Matthew, you might need a better definition of good news. But then we remember, well, Matthew was from the Jewish people group, and they kept meticulous track of who was born, and to whom they were born, because they were waiting for someone to come from the line of King David, who could take back the throne of Israel, restore their land. And so if we remember that, we're like, okay, so for Matthew, this is good news, we'll keep reading. And then before he gets into the list of names, he has an introductory statement, which says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David. So clearly Matthew thinks that the good news that he's about to share is wrapped up with Jesus Christ because that's whose genealogy he shares with us. And he seems to think that Jesus is the one his people have been waiting for because he's really quick to point out that he came from the line of King David. And so the list is long. We're not going to go through it. We're just going to skip ahead to verse 17, which is a summary statement in which Matthew writes, there were 14 generations from Abram to David... And then 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon. And that was like a major event in his people's history. And then 14 more generations from the deportation to the birth of Christ. And so if you're into math or patterns, you might be like, oh, that's cool. There's like three 14s. And if you're super keen, you're like, which means six sevens? And if you're really on top of your game, you're like, that means... Jesus' birth kicks off the seventh seven. And so, yeah, if you're into math or patterns, you're like, that's mildly satisfying. But if you're a Jew like Matthew and you've been raised in the Jewish law and the Jewish calendar, it's way more than mildly satisfying because you immediately are like, oh, he's trying to show me that his account of good news is wrapped up with this man, Jesus Christ, whose birth ushered in the seventh seven. And that was the year of Jubilee. So it was an entire year of rest and of celebration and redistribution of wealth. It was supposed to be a year of unparalleled joy. And so we're like, well, that sounds like good news, right? No work, nonstop parties, redistribution of wealth. So that's an economic leveling out. And then you're like, well, I mean, it's more exciting if you're the one that's going to be getting the land back, not the one who has to give it back. And you start to think about it for a minute or two and you realize yeah, I've been around the block enough times to know that the year of Jubilee probably not going to make it happen because the poor, they don't have enough power to make it happen and the rich have too much power to let it happen. And so human nature being what it is, the Jubilee can only happen by force. So revolution, fighting, war, that means people die, maybe you. And so if apathy and complacency, if they're greater than revolutionary fervor, the Jubilee is a no-go. But if revolutionary fervor is higher, it's still a no-go, or at least not for a while, and not until a lot of blood has been shed. And so Matthew's good news, it started out sounding like good news, but now we're like, I don't know, is it going to end that way? But we keep reading because we persevere. And so the next verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we see this angel announcing a miraculous birth to a lady named Mary, a very young woman named Mary, and he says, you're going to have a son But the father isn't going to be your fiancé, Joseph. It's going to be God, God himself. And if you've ever thought, yep, my problems, they are big enough to need a God-sized solution, you're like, that is totally good news. And this is what the people are going to get. And so Matthew 121, the angel says his name is to be Yeshua. And that means God is salvation. So if you go from Hebrew to the Greek transliteration and then to English, that name is Jesus. But if you go straight from Hebrew to English, it's Joshua. And we're like, oh, that's a, that's a really good name choice, God is salvation, because that's the same name that was given to the man who led God's people in the Old Testament into their land of abundance and rest and promise. And he lived up to his name. He led God's people into victorious battle against their enemies. So maybe this Joshua, This Yeshua will too. So we're like, yep, this this looks like good news. We're going to keep reading because the one that Matthew's people have been waiting for, he appears to have come from the line of King David and he's named like a mighty warrior. So we're like, yeah, Jubilee. It could come through this warrior king they've been waiting for. But then the very next phrase probably set Matthew's first Jewish readers back a little bit because it says that his name will be Jesus Not because he's going to save his people from the Romans, but because he's going to save his people from their sins. And what do you think Matthew's first readers would have felt was their more pressing need to be saved from their sins or to be saved from the Romans, that power that was always up in their business with their laws and their presence and their incredibly heavy taxes And I mean, think about it, the Romans were way worse sinners than the Jews because, I mean, they ate unclean animals, they worshipped foreign gods and lots of them, and their family and their sexual ethics, they were a total mess. So maybe Jesus was coming to save the Jews from sinful Romans. Maybe that's what it was. So that would be good news. Matthew goes on to say in the next verse that Jesus was born to fulfill what God had promised to the prophet Isaiah, that God was going to be Emmanuel, which means God with his people. And we're like, yeah. God's people have been waiting for this ever since the Garden of Eden, so this is really good. And we keep reading, and we see foreigners come to worship Jesus as king of the Jews. We're like, excellent. Other people recognize who he is. We read of Herod, this wicked traitor king who attempts to murderously stop Jesus from becoming the king. But Jesus and his family, they're spared supernaturally, so that's good. And then we have John the Baptist, this... Elijah-like figure who appears on the scene announcing the imminent arrival of the kingdom of heaven. And I mean, he's a little weird. He speaks pretty harshly to these people that God is coming to rule through Jesus. But he says he's doing this to prepare them for this kingdom that's coming. I mean, maybe. He sounds a little bit judgy, all the you know, talk about fire and he calls the religious teachers a brood of vipers, but then Jesus comes back into the picture. And he's baptized by John. And God in an audible voice from heaven affirms, this is my beloved son. And then a dove comes down and rests on Jesus and it almost looks like a coronation scene. And we almost expect Jesus to just ride into Jerusalem on a white war horse and free it from Rome. But then it kind of takes a weird turn because instead he's in the desert and he's battling against the devil. But he comes out victorious, so we're back on track. And finally, then Jesus proclaims the good news of his kingdom. And disease is healed. And the demon oppressed are freed. And we're like, yeah, no wonder. A large crowd started to follow Jesus. No sickness, no disease, no affliction, no oppression. And I mean, yes, it was spiritual oppression that Jesus was dealing with. But surely the physical is coming too, right? Sign me up. I would want to live in that kind of kingdom. And we keep reading, but it seems like every single time we get excited about the good news of Jesus according to Matthew, he switches things up and he leaves us wondering how good his news really is because, I mean, the whole Sermon on the Mount, that is unsettling. Blessed are the poor and the hungry and the persecuted and the mourners. You have to be more righteous than the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. That sounds impossible. And then we get to Matthew chapter 9. And we see Matthew is telling about a paralyzed man who's brought to Jesus for healing. But then instead of healing him, Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. I'm like, does Jesus even get it? This man needs to walk, heal his legs, let him get on with his life. But Matthew, he takes the time and he takes the scroll space to record how Jesus spoke to the paralytic. And it was personally, and it was tender. He says, take heart my son, your sins are forgiven. And it's like Jesus knew the man well enough to know that his deepest need, his deepest desire was to be forgiven of sin, even more than physically healed. It's like Matthew wants us to see the deeper story behind this healing that, yeah, this man, his legs were broken, but his heart was too. It's like Matthew wants us to see that this man's heart hurt even more from the burden of shame and guilt and sin than his legs ever had, and that he couldn't spend another day wearing the oppressive weight of who he was and what he had done. Matthew shows us that the people watching Jesus with the paralytic, they were a bit confused. They wondered if Jesus understood the problem, but Matthew shows us that he did more than they knew, and so that the people watching would recognize his power over the spiritual, Jesus healed the physical. He healed legs so that they knew he could just as easily heal hearts. And so we get to our passage today, Matthew 9, verse 9, and we'll read through to verse 17, but we'll kind of break it down one verse at a time, so just keep it open there. So Matthew 9, 9, and friends, this is the word of God. And as Jesus passed on from there, from the situation with the paralyzed man, he saw a man named Matthew. And we're like, oh, this is neat. We're going to find out how Matthew and Jesus met. So he finds a man. He sees a man named Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And we're like, what? The guy who's been telling us the good news of Jesus Christ is a Jewish tax collector? Because if we had been reading this as a first century Jewish person, we would be disgusted. We would probably just wanna roll up the scroll and stop reading because what could somebody like that have to say that would be worth hearing? Tax collectors were bad. They preyed on the poor to schmooze with the rich and Jewish tax collectors, they were even worse because they were traitors. They were either unclean or an imminent danger of being unclean. And the only good news someone like that brings to a story is when they leave it. But Matthew writes that Jesus says to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and he followed Jesus. So Jesus saw Matthew. He saw who he was. He saw what he was doing, but he behaved very differently than other respected rabbis and teachers of the day who would wait for their followers to choose them. Instead, Jesus, he condescends, he humbles himself. He initiates, he invites Matthew to follow him, and Matthew does. And when Luke is writing about this story in his gospel, he writes that Matthew left everything, and he rose and he followed Jesus. So how is this good news for Matthew? He gave up his career, his financial security, everything he was familiar with, to follow somebody he had just met. And how is the good news for Matthew's readers? Because what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus is king over these kinds of people, the tax collectors, the sinners, the unclean, because who wants to be part of a kingdom that's full of people like that? Right? You know what they say, hang with garbage, smell like garbage. And the next verse confirms it, Matthew 9, 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So when Matthew throws a feast for Jesus at his house, it's the sinners and the tax collectors who show up. And of course, right? He probably didn't know anybody respectable to invite. When you throw a party, you invite the people you know, and the people who aren't ashamed of being known by you, they're the ones who come. And sometimes some people who just want to throw a bit of shade at you, who are looking to drag you down, sometimes they come too. And that's what happened in this case. We read the Pharisees who were righteous Jews that were waiting to be rescued from having to live amongst sinners and Romans. They showed up. And when they saw this, they said in verse 11, When the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Who does that? Any good Jew who reads the scriptures knows that it's people who delight in God's law and who meditate on it day and night who are blessed, not the people who feast with sinners. A good Jew would know that to be wise, you got to walk with the wise. If you hang around with fools, you're going to suffer harm. Jesus's actions, they don't appear wise. They almost look foolish. But Matthew doesn't bother writing down how Jesus's disciples responded because... They're not the bringers of good news. They're going to be the sharers of it later, but they're not the bringers of it. So Matthew tells us what the good news is according to Jesus. In verse 12, Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question by saying, it isn't the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. And with those words, sin sick, filthy, despised Matthew, the Jewish tax collector, cuts to the heart of the issue. He needed Jesus. Remember Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus because he's going to forgive his people from their sins. Matthew needed the Jesus who came to forgive sin and to transform sinners. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And who are his people? People who might have a lot of problems, Who might have a lot of felt needs, but who know that their real problem, their greatest need, is a cure for their sin-sick hearts and who run to Jesus for it. People who have felt the profound pain of knowing that the darkness that they carry is far heavier a load than they can bear. People who long to be free from knowing that they don't live up to their own expectations, never mind the expectation of other people, never mind God. And then to the top scholars of the day, Jesus offers a gentle rebuke in the next verse when he says, go and learn. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know what the scriptures say. Go and learn what they mean. What did God mean when he spoke to his people through the prophet Hosea and he rebuked them, those rebellious people, for, by telling them that more than their sacrifice, he wanted their steadfast love and he wanted their mercy. More than their burnt offerings, he wanted them to know him. The Pharisees needed to learn that God loved the sinners that he was calling to himself and to repentance. And if the Pharisees knew God and loved God, they would respond with compassion and with mercy to the people that God called in compassion and mercy. You see, the Pharisees, they celebrated being God's people, people that God had sought and called and made into a nation. And they were waiting for the one who was going to come, they thought, to exalt the righteous and to destroy the sinners. But then God's son, Jesus, came with a heart and a mission to win sinners. He came to seek them out and to call them to himself and to repentance and then through mercy and grace and love to make them his own, to transform them and to give them his perfect righteousness. But for Jesus to come and forgive sin and transform sinners, he had to be with them. He had to be Emmanuel, God with us, God with sinners. And this is the good news that Matthew he's convinced of, and he is writing to testify to it. It's the good news of the kingdom and his king. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what its king looks like. And the picture that Matthew painted, it blew apart the picture that the Pharisees and the Old Testament Jews had, because in their law, when the unclean and the clean came in contact, the clean became unclean. When the holy and the common met, The holy became common, but when Jesus came to feast with sinners, they didn't dirty him, he cleansed them. And everybody at Matthew's feast, they knew that to share a meal, that was a sign of friendship and approval and acceptance. So the feast was a sign, but what was it pointing to? And so in the next verse, we see another group enter the scene and they have a question for Jesus. Then the disciples of John, the Baptist, came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so Jesus answers them by echoing John the Baptist's words back to them because John the disciple, not the Baptist, recorded in his gospel, chapter 3, he recorded a statement that John the Baptist had made about Jesus being the groom and John the Baptist only being the groomsman. And so Jesus, he's affirming John's words to his disciples in the next verse when he says, can the wedding guests mourn? as long as the bridegroom was with them? And every good Jew knows the answer to that question? No, of course not. Because in Jewish culture, wedding feasts were the ultimate feasts. And it's because weddings were the ultimate celebrations. Rabbis and Pharisees, they taught that weddings took priority over a lot of other religious obligations, And so while he was at a feast that was a sign, Jesus explained the sign of the meal by pointing to an ultimate feast, a wedding feast, and saying, he's the groom, one who was going to be with them for a time, but then would leave. And Matthew, he couldn't fully understand what Jesus was saying when he said it. He might not have fully understood it even when he wrote it down, but he still records Jesus' next words in verses 16 through 17, when Jesus says, nobody puts a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment because that means if you do that the patch is going to tear away from the garment and you're just going to be left with a worse tear you also don't put new wine into old wineskins, because if you do the skins burst and the wine is spilled so you've lost them both you put new wine into fresh wine skins and both are preserved And so to Matthew and to his guests, Jesus says that as king of an eternal kingdom, he's ushering in something so new and so good, the new wine of the new promise. It needs new wineskins, wineskins that aren't old and already stretched to their max, but new ones that can stretch and grow along with this kingdom of people that God is going to call to himself, a kingdom that's going to stretch and grow. And this is the good news that Matthew saw And he experienced and he testified to that Jesus came to forgive sin, to transform sinners by being with them and by inviting them to be with him. This is the new wine that Matthew tasted and that he gladly exchanged everything that he had and that he was to have forever. And so with the rest of his life, and as historical tradition holds, literally with his life, Matthew embraced the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Matthew, he couldn't fully understand what Jesus was saying, but we have the advantage of more time, more perspective, more written revelation than Matthew had. And so we know that while Jesus is out of sight for a time, he will return as the groom For his bride which is the church and when he does all of heaven and all of earth is going to erupt in the jubilant cheer hallelujah for the lord our god the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready Christ's coming is going to usher in the eternal feast of joy and jubilee. So remember how at the beginning I made a factual statement about a basketball game that was either good news or bad news, depending on where you were positioned in the story. Well, the same is true for the good news according to Matthew. Where we position ourselves in the story determines whether we think Matthew's news about Jesus Christ is good Because if we think we're healthy, we're righteous, and we don't need the great physician's healing work on our hearts, the gospel doesn't sound that great. If we like our old garments, if we enjoy the old wine, and we don't have a taste for the new, Matthew's gospel just doesn't sound that great. In fact, it can actually be annoying to read about people who are not nearly as good or as well-behaved being shown friendship and acceptance, and being invited to feast. It can be unsettling to read about a kingdom that blows apart the categories we have for kingdoms that we see and we like and we know and we're a part of. We can be like the people in the church in Laodicea that we read about in Revelation chapter 3. We think we're healthy. We think we're rich. We have everything that we need. But... If, like Matthew, we know that heart sickness is a burden too heavy for us to carry, if we long for a Savior, a God who will come to us in our sin and heal us and save us from it, oh, but this is good news because we have such a Savior. And in the next verses in Revelation 3, our Savior says that when we realize that we're not rich, we don't have what we need we are wretched and we are pitiable and we are poor, blind and naked, exactly then is when we are invited to buy everything we need from him at no cost to us because he has condescended. He has humbled himself and come to us to invite. He initiated and anybody who hears his voice in response to them, God says, I will come with you. I will come to you and I will eat with you. And that brings us to the table. We don't feast yet, but as his people, we are fed with his body and his blood in such a way that sustains us until the day of the future feast and that eternal jubilee in the presence of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you satisfy the longing soul and the hungry soul you will fill up with good things. So, Father, remove our cravings for the things of this world and give us a hunger for you, our coming King, and for your kingdom. Help us to embrace the good news that though we are sick in our sin, you came to us to be with us, to heal us and to transform us and sustain us with yourself as we wait in joyful anticipation for the feast of the eternal jubilee that is yet to come. And we pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus who secures them all. Amen.
0: Thanks, Arlene. And so as she spoke of, we are going to come to this table, and it is literally something that not only did Christ tell us to do, which is why we categorize it in the sacraments, but also it's an anticipation of what is yet to come. And so, it is the high point of our gathering, so I'd like to read from Matthew 26 as you prepare. We're used to, in COVID, post-COVID, the, the plastic sound as we come to the table, and we'll look past that. But I'm gonna, you can prepare your elements as I read from Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it gave it to the disciples and said take eat this is my body then he took a cup and after giving thanks he gave it to them saying drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins i tell you i will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when i drink it in drink it new with you in my father's kingdom and so we do remember that Christ's body was broken for us. And also his blood was poured out for us. So we are eager not only just to remember him and what He did on the cross and in his resurrection, but we also eagerly receive. We eagerly wait to receive from him through this meal. So as I take the bread, I do remind you the body of Christ was broken for you. Receive from him. And we also take the cup and hear these words. The blood of Christ was poured out for you. Receive from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son and for this meal. May it give us everything we need for tonight or for tomorrow, for this week. And we pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you stand together? We hope you'll join us next week as we continue this series, Eating with Jesus. Our speaker next week is Dr. Bryce Ashland Mayo. And so hear these words of benediction before we go. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace.